Hello, and welcome to the inaugural podcast for the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. I'm Dr. Nicole Tyson, and I'm here today with Dr. Paula Hillard. Dr. Hillard is the editor-in-chief for the journal, and today she has selected articles from this month's journal to discuss. Hi, and welcome, Dr. Hillard. We plan to start our JPEG podcast with a little chit-chat, and we decided to avoid politics and religion and talk about something that we both really enjoy, uh, which is reading, reading books. Uh, in fact, we both recently read Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in Silicon Valley Startup by John Carreyou. I thought it was fascinating. Um, uh, first of all, it's based in Silicon Valley and about a Stanford dropout. So Elizabeth Holmes, and basically she de- started a company to be able to do um, blood tests on a very small amount of blood, on a, a finger stick drop of blood, um, in part, I think, spurred by her phobia of needles. But it was just so fascinating. It was really, there was so much fraud and she just bamboozled a whole lot of people into investing a whole lot of money, $700 million and some really um, big name people as well who fell under her spell. So it was just crazy. (laughs) It was, I was was totally shocked by her extent of deception and uh, that they kept on moving forward, you know, with on and on with all the lies. I also thought it was a great how to not to run a company with all of the firings and forcing people out and pitting people against each other and, and tremendous micromanagement. It, it was an interesting, it was a very interesting book. Full of well, it was a page turner. It was, it was. I, I couldn't put it down. So it <laughs> we was. enjoyed it and we would probably recommend reading it, but don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, let's move on to talk about our wonderful articles in this month's journal. Um, the first article we were going to talk about, we have four articles to talk about, uh, two just briefly. But the first one I, I, I love that you chose, which is called uh, The Development of Ovulatory Menstrual Cycles in Adolescent Girls. And this was uh, authored by Carl, uh, Lauren Carlson and Natalie Shaw. And they are out of uh, Research Park in North Carolina, Research Triangle Park. And I know this is a near and dear subject to your heart. So talking about irregular menstrual cycles in younger women. So their abstract basically uh, concluded that our menstrual, irregular menstrual cycles due to anovulation are well described in the few, first few years after menarche, but the normal developmental trajectory from anovulatory to mature cycles during adolescence really still remains unidentified. And so this paper talks about their sort of these limitations in understanding the limitations in research and why this important time helps us understand and guide uh, menstrual counseling for the future. So I think, what is it that you have seen and what do you sort of talk to your patients and families about when it comes to the first couple years after menarche? The traditional teaching is that early menstrual cycles are irregular and that over time, ovulatory cycles develop for most people. The, the message that I have, have stood on my soapbox uh, to talk about, and you know that I talk about the menstrual cycle a lot, if young women are having uh, regular monthly periods, that suggests that things are, are working well in terms of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. It may take a while to get there, 
Um, but it is important for girls to pay attention to their cycles. If they are skipping cycles or if they are bleeding too frequently or too heavily, then we need to pay attention to that and figure out what's going on. And, and particularly for girls with amenorrhea who are really skipping periods and going for months without a period, what I say to them is your body is telling you something and we need to sort out what it is. So Dr. Hiller, let's, let's talk about the comment that they actually are looking at some of the older studies on postmenarchal menses um, with some of the knowledge what we know and then some of the knowledge uh, that is flawed or limited. What do you think about some of our older studies on this subject? I think the authors do a wonderful job of providing the background about the physiology of what we know from older cycles. And one of the things they point out is that older studies may not be relevant to today. These studies looked at Caucasian girls, generally of normal weight. And so do findings from the older studies hold true? And then the other issue is how do you document that a cycle is ovulatory? So they say one could, in adults, cycle length tells us something, but it probably doesn't tell us the same thing in an adult. And measuring progesterone, how do you measure it? Do you measure it in blood, a serum, or do you measure salivary progesterone? And they say that the criteria for ovulation in teens, the cutoff value of progesterone or its metabolites is likely lower than it is in that we had than we previously thought. So they're actually suggesting that um, cycles in teens may be anovulatory. They may also um, have a luteal insufficiency uh, or a luteinized unruptured follicle. So so it's fascinating that cycles may not be clearly ovulatory and anovulatory, but better ovulation and not so good ovulation kinds of kinds of things. So a spectrum and and then if a young woman has one ovulatory cycle, she may then the next cycle be anovulatory. So it's not as if the switch is flipped and she's subsequently every cycle is ovulatory. So those are the the limitations in the studies that we do and, and important to be aware of. Right. And it sounds pretty consistent with one of their studies they summarized from last year, uh, where they said that uh, through their complex hormonal evalu evaluations almost every other day in blood and urine, and they also did pelvic ultrasounds during a couple of menstrual cycles even, that there just isn't a limiting factor or one identifiable factor that contributes to developing these normal or ovulatory cycles. It's just so complicated, you know, the effort between our hypothalamus and our pituitary and our ovaries. So I, I think that we've been counseling our patients about that for many, many years. It seems like this is pretty consistent learning from this article as well. So take a while to become regularly ovulatory. Uh, and right. there's a lot that, that can be problematic for our patients in that interim as well. Right. So one of the questions I think that always resonates with me and my colleagues, and certainly when we give lectures and talks and think about interesting topics is PCOS. So we always get these questions from our, our uh, patients particularly. So does this mean I have PCOS or will I have PCOS? How, what do you think that this article contributes to that? Or how would you, would you change anything in your counseling? 
Well, I think what it what it says is there's so much that we have to learn about what the difference between girls who remain anovulatory and truly ultimately will have a diagnosis of PCOS and those who have this more physiologic anovulation who will become ovulatory. How do we predict who's who? And uh, so there's so much more that we really need to learn about it and the, the factors that may suggest PCOS or confirm PCOS by the diagnostic criteria in adults don't necessarily apply to teens and particularly younger teens. They are at risk for PCOS and developing PCOS, but they may go on to develop normal ovulatory cycles. So uh, it's just the authors uh, point out so nicely how much more we need to learn with detailed studies like they have done. Think how hard it is to do with that cohort of of adolescents to see them on a regular basis every other day, maybe <laughs> getting brutal. blood tests, um, doing ultrasounds. So um, complex and difficult studies, but that really need to be done and need to be done with patients of, of varying body weights and race and ethnicity and, and all sorts of things that influence, p potentially influence the development of ovulatory cycles. Right, which I think bodes to a very good point, which is I think we've identified a great area or gap in research where we could really sort of explore and better evaluate our young girls of today and, and better understand their menstrual cycles, which is always, it's always nice to have these podcasts to sort of bring forth bigger and better ideas for research and for your journal. Absolutely. We need to know more. <laughs> so this is our second article with the title, Vaginal Agenesis and Sexual Experience Without Treatment. So this is looking at a retrospective review of 137 women. Uh, I really enjoyed and liked this article, and I like that it was a multi multidisciplinary team who published this article. It's fabulous. This is Dr. Sarah Creighton's group, uh, and it includes nurses, a psychologist, uh, and it's, it's just a, a good team that's been doing this for a long time, and it's wonderful to see this article. I, I was really excited to see this publication, and I'm excited to publish in, in JPEG. Yeah, and I, I really think that this was a great study, sort of speaking to the key points of vaginal dilation and certainly addressing that the mainstay of treatment in the UK, European countries, and certainly in the US is vaginal dilation, gradual vaginal dilation, really, and that it's not easy. Um, it does take a multidisciplinary team. So it's psychologically demanding. It can lead to emotional reactions. Um, and sometimes patients and providers don't feel always so confident and supported. And so I think that this, this article really speaks to that. And I think one of my favorite points is that they, they bring up that we always assume kind of it's our duty and it's our job to say that we're normalizing function or anatomy as if what they have currently is abnormal. And so I think this really helps us look at their, our cultural norms. I'm sure, did you, do you feel like that's sort of some of our limitations that you have in practice or we have in practice too? Well, I love it that they put the idea of, of vaginal reconstruction, construction, whether by dilation or by surgery, in the context of psychosexual development and the, the idea that women when, who have MRKH and, and uh, um, complete androgen insensitivity uh, syndrome uh, with vaginal agenesis, 
um, can be sexual beings and in, can and do engage in sexual activities, um, some of which include penis and the vagina, but not all of which do. And so the, the idea that there isn't just one sexual act that is of vaginal intercourse, I, I think is so important to talk to our patients about. Um, and they did this in a way that was, was uh, involved a lot of science. They used a, a number of different measures um, to look at women's experiences prior to beginning this multidisciplinary program. Right, and I think in terms of their measures, I think some of the findings that they found were so interesting um, in their VSP or the vaginal self-perception, many of them did perceive that their vagina was too small or they needed to increase in their size, but less than half of them felt that their sexual partner would notice or be bothered or made them feel different. So I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, it and, is and fascinating. Because <laughs> I think our perceptions and patients' perceptions are often not synonymous for sure. Um, and a, a lot of them had orgasms. I think we underestimate that. So they said 25% of their patients had orgasms. Um, it would have been nice to see them go one step further and see, you know, how did they achieve orgasm? Like, what did that involve? Um, so that they described been... a, a multidimensional sexuality questionnaire with a listing of, of different sexual activities. And um, the, the, uh, their patients described whether they had experienced those activities previously. And one of the fascinating things that they suggest at, sort of at the end and in the discussion is that this questionnaire could potentially be used to, um, to really um, give a better qualitative assessment of how women had experienced these activities uh, as to how pleasurable they might have been and, and really the potential to use this questionnaire as a guide to how do we help women um, to, to feel more comfortable with themselves as they go through this process and when they may or may not choose to do vaginal dilation or to undergo surgery. Right. And they did a nice job pointing out and showing really that vagina size does not determine sexual experience and women can and do already have sex, whether they, whether they dilate or not and, and satisfying and happy with it. So it, it's something that certainly parallels my experience taking care of girls um, with MRKH and, and CAIS. So I think it's something to keep in mind. They really brought that out nicely. One of the things that I will never forget is, is seeing a young woman with MRKH and, and seeing her and, and discussing with her this diagnosis. And, and uh, as I do with all the teens that I see, I talk typically to the mothers privately. I talk to mom and daughter first, and then I talk to mother alone, and then I talk to daughter alone. And mother was uh, when I spoke to her before talking to her daughter, mother was unaware uh, <laughs> that her daughter had engaged in vaginal intercourse. Uh, speaking to the daughter, she and her partner had for over a year been engaging in intercourse. And when I did her exam, her vagina was easily seven centimeters in length, which is what these authors and this group defines as uh, completion of the program or success with the program of vaginal dilating. And this had all been in the context of her not really understanding or knowing what the anatomy was, but with a caring partner um, over time, having easily by coitus alone uh, created a functional vagina. 
So I'll, I'll never forget that. And I've had more than this. That's not the it's only great patient lesson. that I've had. I've right. had more than one. And I think most of us who've been doing this for a while, I've had a handful of, of these patients. And uh, they comfortable with who they were and what they were doing. Um, they may not have been aware completely of the anatomy, uh, but they were, were comfortable in themselves as sexual beings. Yeah, absolutely. And I've always been surprised at sometimes it doesn't necessarily correlate with age. I mean, some of my most sophisticated patients have been quite young and those with the most sort of challenges and limitations and less sexual acumen, if you will, were actually quite old. So I, I don't know if we can even clump it into age as, as something we can predict. Not always predictive, but younger generally means a little less knowledgeable. Not always. <laughs> Not always. Not yeah, always. I guess those are the ones that surprised me too, because I think that's my, my take on it. Are there any other key points you took away from this study? Well, I, I just really love that this comes from a multidisciplinary clinic. Um, they place the procedures of, of dilating as, as an option. Uh, as the first approach for at a point when individuals are willing and, and eager to entertain, uh, undertake this, um, but in the context of sexuality more broadly. But then once the, the dilating process is initiated and begun, you have a really, um, they describe their nursing, uh, their nurse meeting with the patient and explaining the program and and uh, follow up, whether face-to-face -face or telehealth as well. So strong involvement of nursing. And then also their psychologist that's available if the woman chooses, if the nurse recommends it or the gynecologist recommends it as well. So this idea of a multidisciplinary clinic, I think is, is really, really important and helpful. Um, and uh, hearing as well, placing the, um, the dilating within a much broader context that women, the women who come to this clinic are sexual beings, regardless of their genital anatomy. Exactly. So a much more comprehensive, holistic approach. I thought it was, it was a great article. And then I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the journal and some of the uniqueness of our journal and some other great articles that are coming out in this month's edition. Absolutely. So one of the things that I think about with regard to JPEG, the journal, and our subspecialty of pediatric and adolescent gynecology is that we are a relatively young subspecialty. Um, the journal uh, is a relatively young journal, and, and as I say, as a subspecialty, we're, we're young as well. And one of the things that that means is that we are still learning a lot from um, case reports and from case series. Um, we have many, many fewer randomized clinical trials that we publish or that we do um, with in our subspecialty, but we still do learn from case reports and the journal is still publishing case reports. Um, some uh, other journals or many other journals, if we think about the Green Journal, they, they congregate their case reports or case series in a, in a supplement. Uh, and many journals are no longer publishing case reports, but I think that, that there are, is still um, a fair amount to be learned uh, that we can learn from case reports. And I, I, I did want to highlight one article, one case report, um, and that is the, um, the piece on surgical management of superficial peritoneal adolescent and endometriosis. And this is 
Mark Laufer and John Einerson, um, who are from Boston Children's and are reporting a, a case report. That, that was an excellent case report, too. It's really an interesting, nice little story of uh, complex endometriosis. So their patient, interestingly, 15-year-old, had had several laparoscopies. She'd had laparoscopies for pain. Um, she um, had had an ovarian cyst. So she'd had several laparoscopies and had had uh, superficial endometriosis. And then she saw an excisionalist gynecologist, and they put the term in quotes. I honestly hadn't <laughs> heard that term before. Um, but um, the idea that is, is uh, coming to prominence in the adult world of uh, needing to not just ablate endometriosis, but to excise all of the peritoneal surfaces. So really quite radical excision of peritoneum. Uh, by uh, gynecologist, adult gynecologist. So this patient had such a radical excision. She um, was found to have superficial endometriosis. Before her superficial endometriosis, she underwent this radical excision. She continued to have pain and subsequently had another laparoscopy uh, done by Dr. Schlaufer and, and uh, Einerson. They have very extensive pelvic adhesions. The uterus was adherent anteriorly and posteriorly. The ovaries were all adhesed and adherent to the walls. Uh, there were new lesions of endometriosis. Supposedly, the idea is you don't have to give any subsequent medical treatment if you do this radical excision. And that clearly didn't work for her. Plus, she had the very extensive lesions that... Um, clearly would have the potential to impact her fertility. The take home from this is that we really need to be very cautious before um, adopting this idea of um, radical excision for adolescents with superficial endometriosis. Our, our final study is a great uh, study called Intrauterine Device Insertion Procedure Duration in Adolescent and Young Adult Women. And this was done by Aletha Akers and uh, the group out of Philadelphia. Uh, and this actually was a, a secondary analysis from their paracervical block study. So I, I love their paracervical block study, randomized clinical trial. They used a paracervical block versus a sham procedure to pain control with IUD insertion and, and confirming my clinical observations that a paracervical block can make a huge difference in my observation, a huge difference. And it was a statistically significant uh, difference in, in their study that they had published earlier. But this then looks at the same data and, and looks at the, uh, the amount of time that the procedures took. They had three different sites and, uh, looking at the time for the, for the procedure. And what they found was that there really wasn't any difference between age groups in the amount of time that it took. So the argument that it's going to take longer in a teen um, is one as an argument against the use of IUDs in teens uh, was not borne out in their study. And I, I think that's, that's an important um, small point, but a potential point in favor of using uh, IUDs. In Absolutely. And, and I like the, the actual seconds that were listed, that the mean duration was 
555 seconds in the adolescent and 383 in the young adults. And that still didn't account for the 180 seconds or three minutes for the paracervical block to wait, you know, waiting for it. So I think it just reiterates your point that these are still brief procedures in adolescents and young adults, and, and that shouldn't be a barrier for their use. One of the, the points is when they looked initially at the amount of times there was some difference, but then they adjusted for the study site. Right. And right. the study site, the site that took a little longer was the site that did take care of teens. And there may be a bit of difference in the way we approach a pelvic exam and IUD insertion with teens compared to the way that we might approach it in adults. Right. So right. When, when we take care of teens, we may give a little more explanation. We may, um, you know, there may be a little bit more uh, verbocaine <laughs> exactly. uh, in, using, <laughs> in taking care of teens as well. But when they adjusted for the study site, there really wasn't a difference right. between the age right. group. And, and I think that's important. I do too. I think that, and I think that's our experience probably as clinicians too. So I think that was just a great study. And I think one of the things we could always think about maybe looking at for a, another study is counseling duration, because I think that's something that is always of interest. Like this, are we doing the counseling prior to or, or at a separate visit? Or does, does the combination mean anything in terms of time duration or efficacy or acceptance? So I think that would be an interesting thing to look at in different age groups. I think there's a lot that we need to look at in terms of counseling and what's the most effective way to do counseling um, in a way that's appropriate for teens. So separate topic for a separate day, <laughs> separate studies. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Hiller, for going through all these articles. And I'm excited to read our, our upcoming journal. It, it will be exciting. It's always exciting. I, I love um, being able to be the editor of the journal and to see the, the quality of the research that is, is coming in and that we are able to publish. And I look forward to our next podcast. All right. Well, me too. Well, thank you, Dr. Hillard. And thank you for all our, to all of our listeners. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.